Every day she turns a new page. What we invest in our kids will be passed on to theirs. How are you this Sunday? Oh, well, it's nice to be with you. I've heard so many nice things about Cornerstone, and here I finally get a chance to be here. It's nice to be with you and know that. Uh, Lord's working in people's lives through this church, and so many different services, my goodness. This is number four for me today, and then number five is later on. And then tomorrow morning, I'm up early, I do Channel 3 tomorrow morning with Tara and that gang, and then come over here at church and do a 9:15 mother stress seminar. You ladies are invited to that, and men, by the way, if you want to come to it, just show up, okay? You don't have to put on your dress and look like you're belong to a Bud Light commercial. <laughs> Just show up. We're going to talk about stress. Then tomorrow night we're going to talk about Have a New Kid by Friday. Uh, that's the title of a best-selling book I did. It hit the New York Times bestseller list. When you're a Christian or write a book on parenting, you don't have much chance of hitting that list, but that's how popular that book has been. The goal tomorrow night is when you leave that you'll say to yourself, I can't wait for my kids to misbehave. I'm ready for them. So we're going to talk about the hormone group, you know, the ones who roll their eyes, the ones who say, chicken, I hate chicken, you know I hate chicken. Four nights earlier, they had three helpings of chicken. Uh, so we're going to talk about the ankle biters, you know. He touched me, he looked at me. And we're going to talk about the older kids who think they're so cool that they don't need you, except for insurance and cars and money privileges, things like that. Uh, let's see. Uh, I'm married. I've been married for uh, 42 years in a row. And, you know, in this day and age where the average, average marriage stay lasts seven years, and then you're done. And someone who's just married says, well, we're not going to be like that because we love each other. Oh, really? What do you think the rest of those clowns did? You don't think they told each other they love each other? You know, people study that stuff to figure, how long does a honeymoon effect last? It lasts on the average two years. My question is, what do you do for the next 48 years till you get your picture in the local paper looking like a raisin? <laughs> I spent a lot of time talking to people about marriage. Uh, got a brand new book out called uh, have a new husband by Friday. <laughs> Ladies, I hope this isn't new information for you, but think of your husband as a four-year-old that shaves. <laughs> he's not as complex as you. He's not like you. He's not your girlfriend. Don't treat him like a girlfriend. He's your husband. 
He does his nails at a red light with his front teeth. When he goes to his friend's house, he doesn't bring them a little gift. And he doesn't like sharing his food with anybody. It's his food. And by the way, when you're out for dinner and you offer your petite sirloin steak that you couldn't finish to your girlfriend's husband, Gary, uh, that's a violation. So I had fun writing that book. I have fun writing every book I did, but those last two have really been fun. On the book table, you'll also find a book called Sheet Music, which is probably the best book I'll ever do. It's a book about the intimacies of marriage. We'll let it go at that. You will learn more about Mr. Happy than you could possibly imagine in that book. Uh, Sandy and I have five kids. Holly's the oldest. She's a principal in uh, District 1 in Tucson. Our second daughter is now staying at home, rearing the two grandchildren. She's married to a coach. Uh, our son, Kevin, is a comedy writer for Ellen, if you think Ellen is funny. One of the reasons why she's funny is Kevin is the head writer there now. Uh, he's won a couple of Emmys and run, written a Disney movie. He's a very talented kid. Looks, looks like me. I remind him, you're going to look like this someday. Don't say that, Dad. But you see, if you've watched the show, he's on the show a lot. He does a lot of the little gig stupid things. And then, uh, who's next? Uh, Hannah. Ladies, we had her at ages uh, 42 and 44. Had a baby at 42. She was our surprise. And then there's little Lauren, uh, who we had at 48 and 50. <laughs> she was our little shocker. <laughs> and the good news, if you ever have a baby at 48, ladies, let me tell you something. There's no labor whatsoever. No labor. Achoo! Oh, what a beautiful daughter. <laughs> One sneeze and you're there. That's the good part. But I gotta, I gotta tell you the truth. When I found out we were pregnant, I was not singing the Psalms. I, I, I was thinking, man, this is a cruel joke. But you know what? Um, God always uses people in people's lives. And I was back in New York State visiting my buddy Moonhead, and Moonhead is my closest friend in life. And his wife Wendy was my first girlfriend back in seventh grade. And she said to me, she said, "Can you think of a better family?" for that little baby to be born in than yours. And those are the words that turn my whole attitude around. So God always uses people, you know, to change people's lives. So it's a pleasure to be with you today. Tomorrow we're going to have our seminar. Uh, we hope you'll come tomorrow night. If you're a business person, you will love the principles and have a new kid by Friday. The same principles. I talk to CEO groups all over this nation. And the same principles I use in talking at a seminar, such as we're having tomorrow night, are the same kind of principles we use in talking to high-powered business people around the country. Uh, the topic this morning is a simple one. It's called The Deception of Perfection. The Deception of Perfection. And it's a universal thing because I think most people struggle with this. They tell themselves a lie every day. I'm going to jump higher. I'm going to be better. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. And they are lies. Trust me, they're lies. And uh, it's based upon a little scripture uh, found in the book of Matthew, Matthew 5:48. Now listen to the scripture. But you are to be perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. Now, some of you might recognize the name Chuck Swindoll. Chuck is a Bible teacher. He's the youngest in his family, uh, which gives you some indication of that wonderful uh, sense of humor and where it came from. Uh, if you name a comedian, 
Billy Crystal, Eddie Murphy, Drew Carey, Jim Carey, Martin Short, Steve Carell, Ellen DeGeneres, Whoopi Goldberg. I can go on and on to impress you with more names, but they're all babies of the family. So babies are the ones who are most likely to just dance to a little different drum from the rest of us. Firstborns tend to be little Attilas. They like to be leaders, bossy, natural leaders. Presidency. Of the 11 people who wanted to be president of the United States, eight of them who ran were firstborn or onlyborn children, including Hillary. Y'all remember Hillary? Y'all remember Bill? Takes a village to keep an eye on Bill. Anyway, firstborn sort of dominate a lot of things. But anyway, uh, they're the most likely to get hung up on this thing called perfectionism. And uh, I had Chuck Swindoll as a guest on my show one day, my radio show, and I said, Chuck, there's a scripture that really bothers me. And he said, what, what scripture is that, Lehman? I would think it'd be a lot of scripture bother a guy like you. I said, be nice, Chucky. He said, well, what's the scripture? I said, Matthew 5:48. He went like this, eh. I know what you're hung up on. You're hung up on the word perfect, aren't you? I said, yeah, I am, because I know I'm far from perfect. He said, well, and then he starts speaking Greek to me. God is my judge. And he pulls up this word teleos. He says, Kevin, that word teleos doesn't mean perfect in the sense that you and I think of perfect. He says, you can almost see movement in that word. He said, we're not to be perfect. We are to strive, we're to mature and grow in our relationship with Christ. That I understood. I immediately felt better. Two simple points I want you to think about this morning. Now, number one, if you're a Christian, this message is really for you. If you're not a Christian, you're a heathen, you're just sort of peeking into the church and trying to check out if this Jesus thing is really real or not, just stay a heathen for a while, would you? And just sort of keep looking, and it'll make some sense to you sooner or later. I got to tell you this straight out. If there's one person I didn't want to become in life when I was growing up who was a Christian. I thought Christians were the geekiest people known to mankind. I certainly didn't want to be like them. And the fact that I am one today is a story in and of itself. I graduated from high school, fourth in my class, but was fourth in the bottom and not fourth in the top. <laughs> and so there weren't a lot of colleges and universities who were interested in having me participate in their curriculum. And, uh, I finally got into college, then got thrown out for stealing the Conscience Fund, which is a long story. Came down to Tucson, Arizona, where I still live. Got a job at Tucson Medical Center, which is a local hospital, as a janitor. Met my wife-to-be in the men's room of that hospital. <laughs> she was a very interesting woman. And uh, she was helping some little old guy go potty. and. Our eyes met, and I said something stupid, and we started to date, and I fell for her like a ton of bricks. And this is interesting, because she was the believer, but I didn't know that. And we dated for several months, and then she pops the question. So if you're a heathen, this is just for you, okay? And she said to me, would you like to go to church with me? And I remember thinking, oh, no. She's one of them. So what do you say to this chick who asked you to go to church, gentlemen? Yes. Oh, yeah, I'd love to go to church. I was lying through my teeth. I didn't want to go to church. I remember sitting in her church thinking, no chick's worth this. <laughs> and then she wanted me to go to church at night. Why would you go to church at night? You've already been there in the daytime. You've got to go back. You didn't do it right. I, mean, I grew up in Buffalo. You went to church once. That was it. 
Not twice. But you know what? It was in a Sunday night service. That pastor was talking about the guy who knew who Jesus Christ was in his head. He didn't know who he was in his heart. I knew who he was talking about. He was talking about me. I tried to avoid that sucker as best I could. But that was the night. The Lord decided that I was going to become new. Because everything that happened that night, I'm telling you, I didn't want that to happen. I didn't want any of that stuff to happen, but it happened. And I walked out of that church for the first time feeling absolutely cleansed and clean. And God took my life and transformed it. I make the point that Jesus always used ordinary people to do extraordinary things in people's lives. He always uses ordinary people. And notice my wife did not beat me over the head like a seal. Now, some of you women, if I may speak directly to you, you got your little psychological Brillo pad in your purse, okay? And you meet this man, or worse yet, you marry the sucker, okay? And you tell yourself, oh, I'm going to change him. Well, I know he drinks too much, or he does this too much, but I'm going to change him. And you get your little psychological Brillo pad out, and you start working on his spots. Well, the only thing you're going to do is irritate that leopard skin. You're not going to change his spots. You're not going to change his spots. But notice that Sandy didn't beat me over the head like a baby seal, okay? And she allowed God to do work in my life. And so I'm a least likely guy to be standing here, certainly not a guy who's authored 37 books, I can tell you that. That's really funny when I think about it. But I've done that, and I just praise God for the fact that he could take someone who was as ill-prepared as I was for life and do something with my life. As a senior in high school, I was taking consumers' mathematics, they were teaching me to shop at Safeway, you know. Nancy went to the store with a dollar to buy some apples. She came home with three apples and 24 cents. How much were the apples? That would be final exam stuff. I mean, I remember looking at my daughter's algebra homework one night, and I went, shazam, when they had letters. So. I'm just one of those guys that should have never made it. But through the grace of God, by the grace of God, here I am. And I'm thankful for what the Lord's allowed me to do in my life. But just a couple of simple things now for Christians. Number one, don't be Pharisee-like in your walk with Christ, okay? Christians love rules. They love rules. Rules aren't going to do a thing for you. My friend Josh McDowell said one profound thing in his entire professional life. One. But it was so profound, I stole it from Josh. This is it. He said, rules without relationship lead to rebellion. Think about that. You can't just run a business with just a set of rules. You can't have a marriage with just a set of rules. It's got to be a relationship. Well, you know, you can't be a Christian without a relationship with your maker. It's not just a bunch of doing these things right. In fact, the real joy of being a Christian is when you really screw up and you know God loves you anyway. Now, there's a great thought. But Christians love the signs of Christianity. We love the Christian fish. I could take you out the parking lot right now and point out fish to you on the back of the cars. We got the regular fish. Then we got the fish that's eating Darwin. Have you seen that one? Then we got the big fish with a little fish next to it. Like mom and dad are the big fish. Here's the little fish. Here's the fish with truth devouring Darwin. Uh, I mean, we're an interesting group. We, we would put that fish any place we could. <laughs> Look at me. I'm a Christian. Now, if we could only learn to drive like Christians, now we'd be getting someplace. Bumper stickers. 
I don't like Christian bumper stickers. They drive me up the wall. The one that really drives me up the wall is this one. Caution, it's probably out here in the parking lot, by the way. Caution, in case of rapture, this car will go unmanned. Have you seen that thing? Now, again, if you're a heathen, like I was, and and you come to a stop sign in downtown Chandler and you see this, caution, in case of rapture, this car will go unmanned. What's that going to do for you? I'll tell you what it would do for me. I would drop to my knees right there at the intersection. Right there, I'd accept Christ, right there on the spot. No, I don't think so. I think I'd say, you jerk. You arrogant so-and-so. But there is one I do like. You know what it simply says? It says Christians aren't perfect, they're just what? Forgiven. Aren't you glad you worship a God of grace who loves you despite your stupidity? Do you ever figure out how really dumb you are? I mean, we're dumber and dumber. By the way, I love that movie. That gives you a mindset of where I am. <laughs> Best movie ever made is The Three Amigos. <laughs> Would you say I had a plethora of piñatas? <laughs> Never mind, I won't even go there. But the point is, we all do and say stupid things. And we think things we shouldn't think. And we do things we shouldn't do. And the reality is that God loves us despite it all. We got the account of Jesus in uh, Luke chapter 5 going to Matthew's home, the Levi's home, the tax collector. And uh, when the Pharisees found out, and that's point number one, don't be Pharisee-like in your walk with Christ. When they found out Jesus was going there, they said, what? He's going to go and eat with such notorious sinners? And it was Jesus himself who said, hey, it's the sick guy that needs the physician, not those who think themselves already good enough. So our place in this world is to go out from here. I mean, the real ministry of this church is when you go out in that door and you interact with people in life. Because i got news for you. Life doesn't always work out for people. But when you come alongside them and you're their friend and you're there to help them, you're doing God's work on this earth. Okay? You don't have to speak in Christianese. And I'm telling you, Christians love Christianese. Oh, God laid on my heart. really. Or how about this one? In our home church, a guy gave a great concert. He had a great voice. I went up to him afterward and shook his hand and said, hey, great. Great to have you here. I always enjoy people saying thank you for being here. And the guy looks at me right now. He says, oh, it wasn't me. It was the Lord. And I thought, I could have sworn I saw his lips move. (laughs) But see, we get get good at this speaking in Christianese. And all Christianese is going to do is put distance between you and another human being. It's not going to bring anybody closer to Christ. So just being your natural helpful self, making a difference in somebody's life might make somebody say, hey, hey, John, what what makes you a little different than most people? And that's where you'll hear that Holy Spirit say, hey, you're on, you're my man. Tell them, tell them what made a difference in your life. And see, that's what living the Christian life is all about. So many people are so busy following the rules, you don't see any joy in their life. I think, I think Christian couples, for example, ought to be joyful. We do a cruise once a year. It's called a Couples of Promise Cruise. I'll tell you the truth. I call it sex on the boat. <laughs> but, you know, and I tell parents and, and couples all over America, I said, you know, if you're not a fun person, stay home. We don't want you on the cruise. But I think a couple ought to take time out, get away, 
and spend some time just being a couple for a week, leaving the enemy at home, uh, enjoying themselves, you know, as a married couple. You want to do something good for your kids, you know, put yourselves up there front. You know, kids are always going to be there. But parents, you're going to hear this from me tomorrow night, they snowplow the roads of life for kids. They do far too many things for them that kids could be doing for themselves. Hey, you want to do something for your kids? Be a good parent. If you're lucky enough to be married, and I know a lot of people in this room are single, you know, be a, be, be a good couple. Be a good single mom. Be a good single dad. Don't badmouth the ex. I don't care if he's a slime ball with a capital S. But make a difference in your kids' lives. We become a society of flaw pickers. Your kid brings home five A's and a B. What do you say, Dad? Hey, what's with a B? Now, let me pick on you dads this morning uh, and moms. How many of you this morning yelled at your kids on the Sabbath? Hands up high. Where are you? I see some kids are looking for their parents now. They're locating them. <laughs> Hands up high if you yelled at your kids. Yeah. yeah. It's easy to do. It's easy to do. Kids are kids. You're the leader of the family, gentlemen. I'll pick on you for a second. Remember when your wife appointed you to that position? Think about that. It's sort of funny. You're counting the kids in your SUV and your one light. Your four-year-old is not in the car. Okay? You'd like to be to church on time just once. That's not asking too much, is it? And all of a sudden that little anger switch goes off inside you. You go flying in that house, you know, looking for that four-year-old, and there he is. His underwear is tucked in his back pocket. Not a good sign he's ready. What do you say to the four-year-old kid? What are you doing in here? You are supposed to be in that car right now, young. You get in that car right now, young man. We are going to worship the Lord together today as a family. And you belt him in, drive nine miles down 202 to church, and you come through the door and begin to greet people. Oh, hi, how are you? This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. And your little four-year-old's looking up at you going, oh. I'll never forget the evening I, I ran over my then nine-year-old daughter's, 11-year-old daughter's uh, feelings big time. And uh, she looked at me through tears and she said, do you know what you ought to do? And I'll show you how stupid I am. I said, what? She said, you ought to read your own book. Yeah, that, that'll humble you a little bit. But it's, it's easy just to be Pharisee-like and have all the rules. And all I'm telling you is that Jesus violated the rules. He violated the rules. But there ought to be joy in your life if you know Jesus Christ as Lord of your life. So point number one is what? Don't be Pharisee-like. Okay? Point number two, flaunt your imperfection. Flaunt your imperfection. Now that's unnatural. It's unnatural to flaunt imperfection. I can show you a little imperfection right here. Take a look. Not a pretty sight. And this, this, this is the body of a former athlete. That's the funny part. I was a baseball player. I could run. I had a great arm. Thought I was going to play professional baseball. In fact, the Yankee organization offered me $65,000 out of high school, which was a lot of money back in those days for a contract, but I, I couldn't get that much money together. <laughs> but <sighs> Imperfection. You women spend billions, not millions, billions of dollars a year in covering things up, okay? My wife, very pretty woman, five foot nine, strikingly pretty for a woman past 60. Men still give her the fisheye when she walks in a restaurant. 
I love it when men give my wife the fish eye. It's like, oh boy, that's a good looking woman. And then invariably they move over to me and go, <laughs> like I should have married a pit bull, you know? <laughs> but I tell you, as pretty as Sandy is in the morning, when she gets up in the morning, she's got issues. <laughs> she's got this apricot stuff that comes in an eight-sided jar. I don't know what it is. But she doesn't take just a little dab of it. She takes a lot of it. And it takes a while for the beauty to come forth. Let's let it go at that. But the point is that we naturally cover up our, our, our flaws. And yet I'm telling you that part of the joy of living the Christian life is understanding how imperfect you really are. Those firstborn and onlyborn children with us this morning you're the ones that struggle with perfectionism more than any other birth order because you were the ones whose standard was mom and dad. You got in trouble for what your younger brother or sister did. You were told things like, I don't care what you did. You understand me? You are the oldest. I expect a little bit more of you, young woman or young man. That's just the way it was. Oh, you don't want to take her with you? Fine, stay home. So the firstborn gets more than their fair share of that stuff. And one of the things that I've gleaned from the scriptures is this. I take great comfort, I think is the right word, in knowing that the disciples who walked and talked with Jesus bellied up. They failed. In John 14, we've got a classic example. Jesus' Jesus' time is running out on this earth. The time has come for him to go and do what he has to do. And he gathers the disciples together in the upper room. He says, hey guys, listen up. This is really important. I'm going to go away, and I'm going to prepare a place for you. He says, and you know where I'm going. I love this scripture. I'm lemonizing the scripture. I hope you don't mind. And St. Thomas gets into it right away. Thomas says, "Uh, Lord, we have a foggy study of what you're talking about. And then Philip gets in the way, and Philip says, yeah, yeah, good point, Thomas. Yeah, show us the Father, and then we'll know. And Jesus says to Philip, Philip, after all this time you've been with me, you don't know who I am? If you've seen me, you've what? seen the Father. Here's these people who walked and talked with Jesus. They saw him perform miracles. They saw him feed the 5,000 people with a couple of loaves of bread and a couple of fish. They saw him change the water into wine. They saw him heal the blind man. Some of them were present when he said, Lazarus, come forth. And here's this guy who's dead who's wrapped in ceremonial claws, gets up out of a grave walking. And these same people who saw this firsthand bellied up. They failed. In John 2, we have the wonderful account of where Jesus, it's his first miracle, by the way, at Cana in Galilee. And to set the setting, they're at a wedding feast, a wedding bash, and they run out of vino. And Jesus' mother's there. And Jesus' mother comes to Jesus and says, Hey, son, Come here, do your thing. (laughs) You know what Jesus says to his mother? I mean, how well do you know your Bible? Do you know what he says? He says, woman! I'd love to call my woman just once woman. But I'm afraid of her. (laughs) Woman, what have you to do with me? He separates himself from his mom. He tells her no. But this this is really sort of interesting stuff. And this relates to what we're going to talk about tomorrow night. We talk about rearing kids. What does Mary, the Jewish mother, say to her son? 
when he says, woman, what have you to do with me? Does she say, excuse me, young man, do you know who you're talking to? I am your mother. Does she go over and grab Jesus by the scruff of the neck or twist his earlobe and say, you will do what I tell you to do? No, that's not what happens. In fact, it's interesting what she does. She turns to the steward and she says, do whatever my son tells you to do. Whoa. Does she know who Jesus is? Obviously. You read on, it talks about the ceremony, the, the big stone pots that were there. They were used for Jewish ceremonial purposes. They held about 30 gallons each. And Jesus changes the water into wine. He first says no, then he does it. I've read that scripture hundreds of times in my life, and it, it hit me one day. I think what, I know what happened. I think Jesus' mother Mary gave Jesus the look. <laughs> it's the same look you might give to your son or your daughter if you ask them to do something, and they said, no! You might give them the look. Well, it's interesting. Down in verse 11 of John 2, it says, and the disciples believed that he really was the Messiah. Well, it's easy to believe when you see it with your own eyes. I mean, if Jesus came to Phoenix and flew into Sky Harbor and came to your house and you spent an hour with Jesus in the flesh and you had a chance to answer every question you ever had about Christianity, what would your life be like? You say, Lehman, I'd be unshakable. I'd be unstoppable. You fool. Yeah, you'd be unstoppable for a while. And then you'd blow it. Because that's the human condition. You're going to blow it. There's going to be sin in your life. You're going to fall short. But see, for the perfectionist, they can never handle failure. Because when they fail, they're done. You've seen young kids will draw a picture and they'll tear it up before your eyes tell you it's no good. That's a sign you've got a budding perfectionist on your hands. But see, you want to be a pursuer of excellence. And I think that's what Chuck Swindoll was trying to tell me. Hey, Kevin, don't get hung up on being perfect. Think about the growth and the maturity in your life as you grow in Christ. That's what it's all about. So failure stops the perfectionist. But the pursuer of excellence, when they fail, they go on. Do you realize that Einstein didn't talk till he was four years old? He was developmentally delayed. <laughs> we would have had Einstein in a program over here. He was seven before he could read. But history reports he did pretty good in math. Can you imagine Albert Einstein's teacher looking over his shoulder? Albert! What are you doing, young man? What is that S doing there? Albert? What is that I see? What is that big E doing there, Albert? And that M? And that little two? Albert, I'm calling your mother. You're supposed to be practicing your E's. Well, here's a guy who they wrote off. Thomas Edison they wrote off. You've known Abraham Lincoln, how many times he failed in office. So failure, you talk to successful people in life, what's the one thing they have going for them? They failed in life. But see, this is a unique position for us as Christians. God loves us despite our stupidity. No matter how many times we belly up, he still loves us. Well, here's the question of the morning. Can you be a better Christian? Can you be a better Christian? Now realize it's a sucker question. Because you can't be a better Christian. You either believe or you don't believe. It's like asking the question, can you be better pregnant? You're either pregnant or you're not. You're either a believer or you're not. In fact, Jesus' own words in Revelation 3.16 says something very interesting. 
He says, if you're lukewarm about me, I'm going to what? I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. That'll make some of us a little nervous. Because I'm here to tell you, there have been a lot of times in my life where I've just sort of pushed God to the side, and I said, Lord, let me drive. I can drive. I can drive, Lord. Let me drive. And I drive down the road of life a couple miles, and all of a sudden I crash. That always happens. What's the first word out of my mouth? Lord, are you there? Is that you again, Lehman? Yeah? You just call me a little tow truck, get me out of here? It's on its way, fat boy. <laughs> he is able and just to what? Forgive us of our sin. Can you be a better Christian? No. Can't be a better Christian. Either you believe or you don't believe. See, I think we lie to ourselves. We tell ourselves, someday I'm going to be good enough. That's a lie. It's like, what day of the week do diet start on? Tomorrow. What, what's the conversation you have with your wife? Honey, I'm going to go down to the wine and start working out, pumping some iron. I'm going to get the, I'm going to get the beautiful body back. No, I, I know I've said that before, but I mean it. Uh, pass me that cherry cheesecake, would you, sweetheart? <laughs> it's a lie. We're good at lying to ourselves. And all I'm saying is you cannot be a better Christian. Maybe you're like Kevin Lehman. You've had this conversation with your Lord. Oh, Lord, you're the potter. I'm the clay. Mold me. Use me. I'm yours, Lord, all 94%. What gets us into trouble is what? The 6% we want to hold back. See, God's a jealous God. He wants to be in your checking account. He wants to be in your marriage. He wants to be in your business. He wants to be your everything. I know we give God a number. You see a little thing? God's number one in my life. I got news for you, folks. You don't give God a number. If you're lucky, he's going to give you a number is how I figure it. He's God. Final question. How many of you have little pictures on the refrigerator door of your home that were drawn by little kids? Hands up, where are you? Yeah, look around, a lot of people. Here's the question, are those pictures any good? Good. I would say they're precious. My little grandson, Timothy, uh, drew that airplane right there for his Grammy. Really, I talked to Timothy, ma'am, that's a dinosaur. <laughs> well, it's still precious. Now, let me leave you with this thought this morning. Almighty God looks at you and I this morning. He doesn't see perfection. He sees a little incomplete picture that doesn't have it all together. They loved you and I so much that he gave us his only begotten son to live like the rest of us and grow up and be brutally nailed to a cross. He was the lamb, the lamb of God, whose blood shed so that you and I could have eternal life someday. But make no mistake about this. The scripture is clear. It says, if you love me, you'll do what my scripture tells you to do. He's a jealous God. He won't settle for 94%. And the interesting thing is, you won't be happy with 94%. You've got to love God totally to have peace in your heart every day. Let's pray.
Father God, thank you for these people. Thanks for this church that has such a massive outreach in the valley here. Lord, it's so good to come to a place where rules are not emphasized and relationships are. Lord, we love you. We thank you for loving us as we are. And you know our minds, you know our thoughts, you know our many problems. I just pray by, by way of your Holy Spirit that you'll come and you'll heal and mend and give peace to those of us who are struggling. Lord, the leadership of this church has just lost a loved one. They're in Texas. Bring comfort to them. And Lord, be with my family in my absence. Thank you for loving us, Father, as you do. In God's holy name I pray. Amen. <laughs>